Parshas Vayigash, we know every year exactly what happens in the story, and nevertheless we approach it with great anticipation and with great excitement. The cliffhanger from the end of last week's Parsha to find out exactly what's going to happen. So at the end of last week's Parsha, Yehuda has approached Yosef. They've already begun their conversation, Vayomer Yehuda, Manomar Laduni, and so on. At the very end of last week's Parsha, Yehuda is talking to Yosef, and we take a break between one week and the next. And so in our mind, Vayigash is a brand new section. But if you were to read it successively, if you were to read Miketz into Vayigash, you couldn't help but be bothered by the obvious question. Yehuda is in the middle of talking to Yosef. Vayomer Yehuda, he's talking to Yosef. And how does our parsha begin? Vayigash elav Yehuda. Yehuda approaches Yosef. What do you mean Yehuda approaches Yosef? They're already talking. This is I share this with you every year. You'll forgive me because it's just one of my favorite divrei Torah. I, I feel compelled to share it with you. So what do you mean by Yigash? What is so remarkable that Yehuda approaches Yosef? They're already in the middle of a conversation. What's so heroic that Yehuda does? In what way does he step up? He has already appealed. He's already approached Yosef. So the answer is, Vayigash doesn't mean that Yehuda is initiating the conversation. The conversation had already begun in last week's Parsha. What does Vayigash mean? We have Vayigash three times in Tanakh. That word appears three times. The first time, anyone know? Avram. When? Sodom. The first time Vayigash appears, Avram approaches God. Vayigash Avram, Avram steps up. He steps out. He approaches and he challenges and he confronts the Ribbon Shalom and he says, How could you possibly do this? There must be righteous people there that deserve to be saved. Second time is here, Yehuda. The brothers are apathetic, they're silent. They're silent. But Yehuda, Vayigash, I love Yehuda, Yehuda refuses to be silent. He rallies, he protests, he confronts. Yosef, not knowing it's Yosef. And he says, you cannot keep in Yemen, you will kill my father. There's no way, take me instead. And the third time, anyone know? One of the Navi. yes, which one? Eliyahu Anavi, Bahara Carmel. The word Vayigash is used with Eliyahu as well. That, he is in the middle of this battle royale with the Nevi'e Baal. Who is the real God? And Elio Anavi steps up. He's not afraid. He's not fearful. Vayigash, he steps up. And he confronts the Nevi'e Habal. So three incidents. Three times we have in Tanakh where while those around them were complacent and apathetic and indifferent, were silent and passive, three individuals refused to be silent. They stepped up and they stood out. Avram refused to accept the suffering in Sodom. Yehuda refuses to accept fatalistically the sentence for Binyamin and Eliyahu steps up against the Nivea Baal. Here's the best part and here's why I share this Dvar Torah every year. The Ramah, Rav Moshe Isselis and Shulchan Arach quotes from the Rokeach. You know why we begin our Amida? What do we do to start Shemona Esrei? We take three steps forward. You don't have to take three steps backwards, that's a misnomer. You're supposed to take three, you only take three steps backwards if you need space to take three steps forward. But you have to take three steps forward. And why do we take, why do we take three steps forward, writes the Ramah, quoting the Rokeach, 
You know why our tradition is to take three steps forward? It corresponds with the three times Vayigash was used. Because when we daven our Amida, when we talk to the Ribbono Shalom, like Avraham, we're sensitive to the suffering of others in the world and we protest and we say, God, there must be righteous among them. How could you do it? That's one step. The second step we take is like Yehuda. Of Kol Yisrael Arevim Zebazeh. We take responsibility for our fellow brothers as Yehuda did for Binyamin. And the third step we take like Eliyahu Navi in Har Carmel who did what? Made a huge Kiddush Hashem. He sanctified God's name. So when we talk to Hashem, we begin by taking those three steps forward, corresponding with the three times Vayigash, reminding ourselves of our responsibility. Like Yehuda, to be a leader, like Avram, to be sensitive, and like Elio, to pursue Kiddush Hashem, that the davening, we're about to engage in the Amida. Rafainu Barachaleinu, Shema Koleinu. We're going to ask all these things for ourselves. Our health, our livelihood, our nachas from our children, our shalom bias, the three steps forward remind us of the responsibility in davening to think of others. One step Avram, one step Yehuda, and one step Elio. I share it every year, but I can't help it. It's my favorite on Vayigash. So Yehuda steps up, and how does Yosef respond? You asked us if we have a father or brother. Let me tell you. We've got a father, and uh, he's going to surely die if you don't send my brother back with me. To which Yosef says what? Yosef couldn't hold back. Yosef could not hold back. He said, get everyone out of the room. Let me have the room. He began to cry. Everyone heard the cries. And what does Yosef say? Yosef Yosef. Yosef reveals himself and with this Chazal say this is the most powerful Musr the biggest patch anyone has ever received two words Ani Yosef that's it that's it the way the brothers felt at that moment is the way we are all destined to feel at the end of our lives when we get upstairs why? because at that moment what the brothers had done came into full clarity. They understood the consequences. Everything made sense. It came to be now. They, they confronted, they looked in the mirror and they confronted their own actions. And there's no greater musr than simply being shown the results of your own actions. At that moment, no one needs to rebuke you or criticize you or castigate you. At that moment, when you realize the consequences of what you have done, there's no greater musr in the world. So he turns to them and with those two words, Chazal say, he gave him such a zetz. Ani Yosef. I'm Yosef. Whoa. But it's his next words, which are troubling. Ha'od avichai. What do you mean ha'od avichai? What did Yehuda just say 15 times? Yehuda's whole appeal, his whole argument is, you got to send Binyamin back with me. If you don't send Binyamin back with me, my father will surely die. You have to send Yehuda back. You have to send Benjamin back with me. Yosef can't take it. He reveals himself. He cries and he says, Tell me, is my father still alive? Is your father still alive? I just told you 20 times that if you don't send Benjamin back, he's going to die. Of course he's still alive. What did Yosef mean? What is Yosef asking? Ha'od avi chai. Now notice Yosef doesn't say ha'od avinu chai. 
Is our father still alive? Because the answer to that question, Yosef already has. When Yehuda volunteered over and over again, our father will surely die. He knows his father's still alive. What did Yosef mean, Hauda V? Yosef wasn't concerned with his father at this point being biologically alive. Did he have a heartbeat? What he meant is Ha'ud Avi, my father, the special relationship he had with me, the unique relationship we shared, the love and affection my father used to have for me. Ha'ud Avi, is my father still alive? He remembered his father, he longed for his father. We had an amazing scholar in residence last Shabbos, Rabbi David Foreman, who developed the entire idea that um, what's really going on in the story, he's quoting uh, Rav Yoel ben Nun and Rav Meidan, who have a whole discussion, a whole debate they had in the Megadim journal about this issue. But we're really, we have the disadvantage, so to say, of knowing the whole story, of seeing the story from the air. So we know everything as it unfolds. But if you look at the story through the eyes of Yosef, just through the eyes of Yosef, then you really have no idea what's going on here. All he knows is he shares... He has these dreams. His father loves him and favors him and gives him this coat. He's the apple of his father's eye. The joy of his life. And then he has these dreams and he shares them with his brothers and his brothers don't like them. Then he shares a dream with his father and his father says, right, the stars and the sun and the moon and his father says, what do we, you think we're all going to bow down to you? All of a sudden there's a little uh, crack in the wall. There's a little break and there's a little daylight between Yosef and his father. And what's the next thing that happens? His father says, do me a favor. I need you to go to Shechem to check on your brothers. Shalom. Go check on the shalom. Go sh- check on the well-being. Shalom. Yosef says, shalom. The well-being. You know my brothers can't even say hello to me. I'm not talking to my brother. We can't even be in a room together. And you're sending me to Shechem to check on the people who hate me? And Shechem is a hostile region. What happened in Shechem? Levi and Shimon decimated the people of Shechem. But Yosef says, all right, keep it up. What can I do? I have to go. So Yosef goes to Shechem to check on his brothers. And the next thing you know, he's stripped naked, thrown in a pit. We studied this last week. Stripped, not two weeks ago, stripped naked, thrown in a pit. Ultimately, with snakes and scorpions. Ultimately, he's retrieved, he's sold to a caravan of Yishmaelim into slavery in Egypt. Now, just through Yosef's eyes, not knowing any more than we know from the narrative, from the text, just living it through Yosef's eyes shares his dream with his father with whom he shares an incredibly close relationship and for the very first time his father expresses some dissatisfaction what do you think we're all going to bow down to you what kind of dream is that next thing you know his father sends him to Shechem where the brothers await and throw him in a pit strip him naked sell him into slavery first try to kill him throw him in a pit sell him into slavery and now he's in Egypt all these years and what question must he be plagued by What's the question that he can't get away from? Was dad in on this? Right, because the question of course is, why didn't Yosef, when he rises to the position of viceroy, send an email to his father? Why didn't he send a postcard? Why didn't he reach out? Why didn't he send the caravans of the Agalos? Why didn't he send all of these wagons back to his father the moment he rose to a position of power? And there was no liability in doing so. Why was he waiting? To which some suggest, because Yosef is unsure. Did his father orchestrate this whole thing? And why in Yosef's mind is, not that, is that not beyond the realm of possibility? I'm just repeating, if you were here this past Shabbos, you heard Rabbi Foreman. But for those who weren't, why is that not beyond the realm of possibility? 
Yosef knows his family narrative. He knows his family history. And what does Yosef know? Well, he knows his great-grandfather Avram had two kids. And what did Avram do? The wife said, get rid of one. And he listened. He got rid of one. Sarah said, exile Yishmael. Yishmael was out. He knows that his grandfather Yitzchak had two sons, Yaakov and Esav. And the wife said, I really love Yaakov. And what happened to Esav? He was out. And now his father Yaakov has 12 sons. His mother's gone. And Yaakov's wife, in his mind, must say, the dreamer, I want him out. So Yaakov is just following his father and his grandfather in orchestrating, sending Yosef to Shechem, where the brothers await to orchestrate his exile, to get rid of him. So Yosef, the entire time, even when he is a ruler in Egypt, can't help but wonder. And when the brothers show up one day, he's trying to... He, he tortures them. He torments them. But what is he really trying to achieve? So we studied last week that his goal was, like the Rambam's Tshuva Gemura, he's putting them in the same exact position where they had once failed. Where they have a brother from Rachel, the only other brother from that mother, Binyamin. And he's putting them back in that same position. Are you going to abandon a brother again? Are you going to walk away again? Are you going to leave him enslaved and imprisoned again? That's one opinion. We studied that last week, that Yosef is challenging, testing the brothers. Have they grown? Have they indeed changed? Are they worthy of his forgiveness? But this other approach says no. You know what Yosef was orchestrating with the brothers? He needed to get one piece of information from them, which would clarify and make sense of the whole thing. What was he waiting to hear? He was desperate to know. Was his father involved in this scheme? Did he orchestrate the whole thing? But he hadn't revealed himself yet, Yosef. So he's not going to ask them, Oh, you guys are hungry? Well, tell me, I'm Yosef. Was that in on this whole thing? Because what brothers would have possibly said yes? He didn't do it. Instead, he continued the conversation while concealing his identity in this recognizance mission, trying to access the information. Where was his father on the whole thing? And what happens in our parsha of Yigash? Yehuda opens up and he says, No, no, you can't keep Binyamin. You don't understand. Our father, he already lost a son and he's never stopped sitting Shiva. You don't understand. He is a broken man. He has not stopped crying, not for one second, how he longs for that son. And at that moment, that's the moment Yosef breaks down. He can't hold back. He can't resist. He cries. Why? Because it's at that moment Yosef realizes that his father was not part of this at all. And that's when Yosef can reveal himself, and that's when he can find the capacity to forgive, and that's when he can return to his father. And for the rest, listen to Rabbi Foreman, because his Chiddush, beyond Rav Meidan and, and, um, and uh, Rav Yol Ben-Nun and others, is connecting this entire story to Shira Malos we say before benching. That was the beauty of the speech he gave Shabbos morning, that that entire Shira Malos, that Perak in Tehillim, is David HaMelech describing through Yosef's eyes, through Yosef's heart, what happens. The Hayyinu Kachomim, and um, the whole Azor and Bedima, he went through very, very, very beautifully. But okay, back to our Parsha. So Yosef now knows that his father is alive. The father that loved him, his father hadn't turned on him. And that his father was going to break the pattern. No son, no brother was going to be expelled this time. He was going to break the previous pattern in the family. And Yosef is confident and believes that in fact, Avi, that his father is in fact still alive. 
And that's when Yosef is unable to hold back and he reveals himself and he's willing to forgive. That's its old story. There's a famous Rabbi Nebachia that uh, next week's parsha. if Yosef really forgave his brothers, why do the Asara Harugei Malchus have to die? The whole thing was reconciled. Rabbi Nebachia proves that Yosef never really forgave the brothers. Did the brothers really fully resolve with Yosef? If they did, why do they lie in next week's parsha? After Yaakov dies, the brothers come and say, you know, well, we forgot to tell you, but Dad told us to tell you that you shouldn't do anything to us after he's gone. Can you imagine Yosef says, I have forgiven you. I have buried the hatchet. I have moved past the most egregious, hostile, despicable behavior you did against me. And despite all of that, after all these years, you have to lie to me about dad because you're afraid I'm going to do something. That's where our relationship is at. So did the brothers and Yosef ever fully reconcile? That's a big discussion. Did Yaakov ever find out what happened? Did Yaakov ever find out? So Yaakov comes down to Mitzrayim in our parsha. Does Yosef say, Dad, uh, you're going to find out that I've been the viceroy all these years and you're probably going to wonder why I never reached out to you and let me tell you what happened. The text doesn't tell us. We don't know and it's a machlokas rishonim, rashi, the ramban. Does Yaakov ever find out what happens? There's so much to this story beyond the text where the medrash fills in and the rishonim try to guess and so on. Paro joins the welcome. We're still in the overview section and we're running out of time. Paro joins in the welcome. Yosef gives uh, gifts and goes back to Yaakov. Yaakov gets, the, uh, Yaakov gets the news. It has to be broken to him slowly. You don't want to scare someone to death, even with great news. It has to be broken into him and it's fascinating who's the one who breaks it into him, Sarah Bas Asher, and so on. Fine. Yaakov takes the journey to go see Yosef. He comes down to Mitzrayim. There are 70 descendants. Yaakov arrives in Mitzrayim. And then we have, they settle in Goshen, which is, we studied this in the past, you can listen online, how the Jews are somewhat isolationists. Even though they're going down to Mitzrayim and will participate in the Egyptian society and culture and so on, led by Yosef as one of the rulers of Egypt, but nevertheless... They also isolate themselves. Goshen is a Jewish community. It's a Jewish ghetto. It's a Jewish neighborhood. And that's by design. Who sets them up in Goshen? Yosef. Because Yosef, understanding the threat and the challenge of assimilation of Egypt, knows that he needs to put them in Goshen, in their own segregated community. There's something very instructive about that section. Again, we've studied it in the past. Yaakov then, Yosef orchestrates this meeting between Yaakov and Paro. It's another one of my favorite sections in Bracious. If you're a fly on the wall, you can't wait to hear what they'll talk about. Yaakov is the spiritual ruler of the world. Paro is the physical ruler of the world. These two great men have an audience together. What will they talk about? Global warming? Climate change? How to fix the world? What will they talk about? Peace in the Middle East? Who they who like in the presidential election in America? What are they going to talk? What will these two great men? What will they possibly talk about? And what do they talk about? Age. It could not possibly be more disappointing. Their conversation. 
Vayave Yosef is Yaakov Aviv. I love the language, Vayave. Yosef brings his father. He says, Paro, all these years I've been telling you about my father and he's so smart and he's so spiritual and he's so amazing and he molded and he shaped me. And when I'm in moments of distress, it's his picture, it's his image that comes up in my mind's eye. My father gives me strength. He's all I think about. I can't wait for you to meet him. Vayave. He brings, he brings um, Yaakov to meet Paro. By the way, Rabbi Foreman spoke about in the afternoon how the way that Yosef was able to decipher Paro's dream is that the beginning of Parshas Miketz is the exact inverse. It's the mirror image of Yosef's life. Right? It begins with the beginning of Parshas Miketz. They go pull him out of the boar. But a prison is not a boar. The boar is reminiscent of his being in the pit. And they, by Chalef Simlosav, they get him dressed into nice clothing. Yosef had been stripped of his nice clothing. And so, and he played out the whole thing. And ultimately, Yaakov had sent him to Shechem, and here it's Vayava, they bring him to Paro. And Rabbi Foreman described how in Yosef's life, he's living with this doubt about his father. Maybe his father orchestrated the whole thing. Paro becomes a father figure for him. He's brought, Paro's the one who pulls him out of the pit. Paro's the one who gives him back nice clothing again, a nice coat. Paro is the one who gives him power and freedom. An opportunity. So Paro, in many ways, becomes a father figure. And certainly while he's waiting to find out if he still has his father, not, again, whether his father's among the living, but meaning has his father's loyalty. So now he has this opportunity for his two fathers to meet. Yaakov, his spiritual father, and Paro, his father who gave him freedom. And what do they talk about? Paro says, uh, oh, nice to meet you. Tell me. You, how old are you? Oh my goodness. How, wow. You're like a gazillion years. How old are you? And Yaakov answers, What's Yaakov's answers? I'm 130 years old. My life has been miserable. And if you think I look old, you should see my ancestors, how old they were. <laughs> Yaakov gives Paro. That's it. That's their meeting. That's the conversation. Wow, you look old. Man, I'm old. I'm frail. And oh, he's like an old Jewish man. Oh, boy, has my life been miserable and aches and hurts. and it eh? Okay, it was nice to meet you, Zygazunt. That's the meeting. <laughs> That's the meeting. Could you be more disappointed? So we've spoken about this in the past as well. You could, uh, you could listen online. There's many, many answers. The Ksava Kabbalah of Yaakov Mecklenburg has a great answer. I uh, heard this from uh, my great uncle, Rabbi Lou Nolman, Yisrael Nolman. So Yaakov Mecklenburg, the Ksava Kabbalah says that they were exchanging Dvarim Shalmabekach. Chazal of a language you see in the Gemara in a number of places. Dvarim Shalmabekach which is another way of saying small talk. And the Ksav Kabbalah says that we, there's a Torah value to small talk. Small talk is not a waste of time. Small talk is the way in which we connect with other people. We build a bridge. We make a bond. You see, if I only talk to people with an agenda, so then I don't really care about you. I care about completing my agenda. But if I'm willing to engage in small talk, it means I care about the relationship. Because after all, what is small talk if not the building blocks from which a relationship is built. So says Rabbi Yaakov Mecklenburg, the Ksav they were exchanging from Dvarim Shalmabekach. 
It was small talk, and we shouldn't denigrate small talk. Small talk also has a value because it is the building block upon which relationships are, are built. That's one answer. We explored other answers as well for another time. Now the famine kicks in that Yosef had understood from the dreams. Yosef, the great Fed chairman of Egypt, had saved all of the years of plenty. So when the famine kicks in, he, this great economist, is able to make good on uh, his strategy and he's able to sustain the people of Egypt. Okay, that's our very long this week, I apologize, overview of the parsha. Let's delve into the psukim I want to study together. Perak Mem Vav, Pasuk Aleph, chapter 46, verse 1. It is in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, page 256. 256. Page 256. Perak Mem Vav, Pasa We're now after the point where Yaakov has been informed that Yosef is still alive. He is thrilled, he's overwhelmed, and he assembles his entire family. He calls Shlomi Legasi. We're moving to Egypt. Let's go. So Vaisa Yisro, Yaakov uh, sets out with everything he has. Vayava Beira Shava. And they arrive in Be'er Sheva. Vayizbach Zvachim Lelokei Aviv Yitzchak. And what do they do there in Be'er Sheva? They offer, he offers a sacrifice to the God of his father, Yitzchak. Why Be'er Sheva? Be'er Sheva is a significant place. Yaakov is going to plant trees in Be'er Sheva. And those trees will sprout and grow and blossom and serve the Jewish people on their way back up from Egypt. And there's a tremendous beautiful imagery about how, right, in the old times, the Gemara quotes, we had this in Subas, how people would plant trees and then the grandchildren and great-grandchildren would cut down the trees and use them for the chuppah, to build the chuppah. It's the, I know, the notion of the commitment of one generation to the other, midol ador, the idea that we plant and while we may not benefit from reaping that which we've planted in our lifetime, we plant with the sense of vision and commitment and investment in future generations. Excuse me, so that's one thing that's happening here. But Yaakov offers these sacrifices. Says Rashi, to whom does he offer the sacrifice? Lelokei Aviv Yitzchak. To the God of his father, Yitzchak. That's interesting. Don't I know who his father is? Just say the God of his father, we know that's Yitzchak. Or say Yitzchak, and we already know, we better know by Vayigash, that Yitzchak is his father. What's the redundancy? Lelokei Aviv Yitzchak. So, the Rashpam, what? Look at the Rashpam. Sha'asa sham Yitzchak mizbeach bebe'er sheva, kesheniglo lo HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so remember Yitzchak's whole life was dedicated to emulating his father. Avram had dug wells, they were filled in, Yitzchak we dug them. Now Yaakov is paying it forward, or paying it backwards. Yaakov now is emulating his father, Yitzchak. Yitzchak, when he was exiled, when he was on the run, Yitzchak went to Beersheba and offered a sacrifice there. So Yaakov, when he's passing through Beersheba on his way down to Egypt, is going to be like his father Yitzchak and offer a sacrifice there. Why is God identified as the God of his father Yitzchak and not also as the God of his grandfather Avraham? So here's a famous Rashi. 
Rashi quotes the Medrash that you see from here a person is more obligated in honoring their father than their grandfather. And that's why the Pasuk associates Yaakov's sacrifice with Yitzchak or the God of Yitzchak rather than Avram because a person has a greater responsibility, a greater obligation to honor the father than grandfather. And this is actually a fascinating big machlokas in halacha. Is there a mitzvah of kibbara ve'em on grandparents? I'm talking to a room that probably has a bias. <laughs> a room that probably has a strong bias uh, in this question. I'll represent the father's, uh, I'll represent the parent's side on, uh, on this issue. So, um, the Gemara and Kedushan and Aflamid, the Gemara and Kedushan and Aflamid based on a Pasuk uh, that says, the Gemara and Kedushan d- derives that a grandfather is responsible to teach his grandson Torah. That there's a responsibility on a grandfather to teach a grandchild Torah, based on the Pasuk. In fact, I was told that uh, Lakewood, and many of the yeshivas in Lakewood, they, they write this Gemara on the invoice and they send it to the grandparents. That, uh, they try to show halachically. Tuition. Tuition is not just the responsibility of the parent, but the tuition, I'm sure many of you know this, uh, many of you don't need the Gemara for this, uh, you know it well. So the Torah Tamima, the Torah to Eilaga Torah Tamima learns from that Gemara in Kedushin that if a grandparent is responsible to teach Torah to a grandchild, then logic would dictate that that grandchild is obligated in in Kibud and Kavod to that grandfather. So the Torah Tamima derives from the Gemara in Kedushin that a grandchild is obligated in Kavod, Kibud Aveim, so to say, to a, to a grandparent. The Gemara also says, Gemara Nivamos, that if a, a person has a child, and that child has children, a person has children, and the children have children, even if their children, chas v'shalom, die in the parent's lifetime, if the grandchildren survive the parents and continue to live, then they have fulfilled pru'uravu. Pru'uravu is the obligation towards continuity. So even if chas v'shalom, one's own children died, but if they've provided grandchildren, then the continuity is there, pru'uravu is fulfilled. So others try to prove from there again that, what do you see, if Pruvu is fulfilled through grandchildren, so then there is an obligation of grandchildren in Kavod to those grandparents. And moreover, we have a statement of Chazal, B'nei Banim Areim Kevanim, grandchildren are like children. And based on all of this, there is a conclusion of many, this is how the Ramah holds in Yorodeya, that there is an obligation to honor grandparents. However, the Maharik, the Maharik, based on our Medrash, why am I telling you all of this? Because the Ma'arik, based on this Rashi, quoting this Medrash, the Ma'arik Paskins, that there is no obligation to honor grandparents. It says, Not Avram, why? Because there is no obligation in Kavod for grandparents, and that's why there is only an association with Peir. The Ramah quotes the Ma'arik, and says, we don't hold like that. So it's a machlokas between the Ramah and the Ma'arik, whether grandchildren must honor their grandparents. According to some, the obligation of grandchildren honoring grandparents, Rabbi Kiva Eger writes this way, the obligation of grandchildren honoring grandparents is an obligation that goes through the children. So that means that if my parents are obligated to honor their parents, and I'm obligated to honor my parent, 
that I must honor my grandparent through the parent. With the nafkamina for a bikiva eger, if God forbid a parent died but the grandparent is still alive, are you still obligated to honor the grandparent? There's a lot of halachic literature on the subject. I don't want to get into it now, but I only call it to your attention because the entire discussion revolves around this pasuk and this medrash that Rashi is quoting, why it's identified, why God is identified here as the God of Yitzchak and not the God of Avram. There's a very long Ramban here. And the very long Ramban here says the following. Let's read a little bit of it. The uh, Ramban is not buying Rashi's answer. Why does it have to say anybody? Don't say Avram, don't say Yitzchak, don't get into honoring parents or grandparents. Just say to the God of Avosav, his fathers. As we have elsewhere. Let's be consistent. We've seen a few times. Why are we getting into this at all? Why are we invoking Yitzchak at all? So it says the Ramban the following. This is a major turning point in Jewish history at this moment. On the one hand, on the surface, it looks as if it is a joyous time. Yaakov and Yosef are going to be reunited. And though others will suffer from the famine, the family of Yaakov will have access to Pesach buffets. They're going to have unbelievable food. This looks like a joyous moment. But says the Ramban, that's only on the surface. Because beneath the surface, one realized this is a major milestone. As Yaakov descends to Egypt, it begins the dark period of the Gullus. Upachad mimenu. And Yaakov is very afraid. Yaakov is no fool. Yaakov understands what's about to happen. He's living in Israel. And he's taking his entire family on Yerida. And even if he's taking them on Shlichut, he's going what he thinks is on Shlichut to Mitzrayim, just to be with Yosef temporarily. Many or most Israelis who go on Shlichut know that there's a great likelihood that they're not going back. That they're going to settle. That they're going to get comfortable. That they're going to integrate. And God forbid even assimilate. So Yaakov understands. First of all, Yaakov has a tradition that there's a promise God made his grandfather that they're going to go to Egypt and they're going to be slaves there. And Yaakov's no fool. He now sees it all coming together. And he's taking his 70 family members and he's moving down to Egypt and he says, he understands, there's a pachad. He's filled with fear. So he offers these sacrifices in the name of his father Yitzchak. Because what's, what's Yitzchak's character trait? Anyone know the name of Rav Hutner's Svarim? Pachad Yitzchak. That comes from Chazal. Chazal, I associate Pachad. Pachad Yitzchak. Yitzchak is Gvura. Yitzchak has this power. Yitzchak has this faith that overcomes the Pachad. So Yaakov, as Yaakov feels Pachad, as Yaakov is heading down to Egypt and is overwhelmed with a feeling of fear and anxiousness, he taps into the strength of not Avram right now. This is not a chesed moment. This is not a moment of, you know, hospitality committee and the welcome committee and the buddy system and Tom Shabbos. And there are Avram moments which are defined by chesed. 
But as Yaakov is on this journey, descending down to Egypt, he can't help but think of what this will mean for his descendants and what will become of his progeny. He's overwhelmed by Pachad, so he taps into the Midah of his father, the Midah of Gvura of Yitzchak, the Pachad Yitzchak, and Davka, that's why Vayizbach Zvachim Lalukei Aviv Yitzchak. It's not a coincidence, says the Ramban, that he offers sacrifices to the God of his father Yitzchak, asking to sustain him and his children throughout this dark period of Golos. And where does he do it? Where his father had davened, in Beersheva. That's where Yitzchak had stopped to get permission. He doesn't offer a korban ola like his grandfather Avram. Avram had offered an a, a ola, a uh, elevated sacrifice. What is a zevach? A zevach is in the category of a shlamim, a korban shlamim. What's the root of the word korban shlamim? What are you trying to achieve? Shalom. So Yaakov, Hashem, he is awe and fear and anxiousness. So he specifically hikriv shlamim lahashlam elav kol amidos shalom ba'olam. The korban shlama brings peace and serenity. The sacrifice Yaakov brings on his way down to Egypt, a place that will bring persecution, persecution and oppression and suffering. He specifically offers a sacrifice of shalom, and he does it to Eloke Yitzchak, the god of his father Yitzchak, who's characterized by Pachad Yitzchak. There's a lot more. If you look, this is one of the longest Rambans ala Torah. It's an enormous Ramban. You could read it more on your own. But that is the Ramban's theory, unlike Rashi. Rashi, quoting the Medrash, says, Why is it okay, Yitzchak, not okay, Avram? What do you see? Oh, you have to honor your parent more than your grandparent. To which the Ma'arik says, You see, there's no mitzvah of kivun, of covet for a grandparent. The Ramban says, That's not what's going on over here. Don't extrapolate anything having to do with covet. This has nothing to do with that. Why is it okay, Yitzchak, and Avram is omitted? Because this is not an Avram moment. This is a Yitzchak moment. Yaakov is worried, he's afraid, he's tapping into the midah, the pachad Yitzchak, the gvura, he's going to the place that his father had davened, and he's offering a korban shlomim in the hope and the, and the prayer for peace, despite, despite what he's about to go into. Pasuk Beis, God calls out to Yisrael. First of all, it doesn't say, Yudke Vavke, it says Elokim, which is midas adin. Yisrael, doesn't say Yaakov, I've been telling you the last few weeks, the Torah is giving us hints. Every time it, it uh, switches between Yaakov and Yisrael, it's giving us a hint. Once Avram's name changes, it changes forever. Same with Sarah. But Yaakov, once his name is changed, the Gemara Baruchas tells us, right, you're not allowed to call Avraham Avram anymore, or Sarah Sarai anymore. And yet, you're allowed to call Yisrael Yaakov. He's the exception, and the Torah does. And I'm telling you, you have to look, why is he sometimes called Yisrael? Why is he sometimes called Yaakov? So here God refers to him as Yisrael. God speaks to him at night under the cloak of darkness. And he says, Yaakov, Yaakov. Why the repetition? Yaakov, Yaakov. What? Rashi writes, Lashon Chiba. The repetition of Yaakov, Yaakov, is affection. If you say to your child, my little, 
you say their name twice, it's, it's love, it's affection. But there's another interpretation. Whenever we see the name repeated twice, I don't remember who says this, it might be Refersh, it's possible I just made that up. I don't remember who says this. But that when we see someone's name twice, and we see it throughout the Torah, we see it throughout the Torah, when someone's name is used twice, it's talking about their potential and their real. And the line in between is a reference to the fact that they have not yet reached their potential. And there are exceptions where there is no line, there is no break. Because at that moment, the Yaakov who he could be is the Yaakov he'd become. Which is not yet what we have here. But it's funny. God calls out to Yisrael and He calls him, Hey Yaakov, Yaakov. So if you're calling him Yaakov, why not reach out to Yaakov? If you're reaching out to Yisrael, why not call him Yisrael? And what does he say? Vayomer, and Yaakov answers, the famous answer we've also seen, Hineni, here I am, here I am. Says the Sforno, Vayomer Elohim li Yisrael, Masha'omer lo ata hayabashvil hayoso Yisrael. Whenever you see, says the Sforno, that God calls him Yisrael, it's because it's a message not just for the limited, narrow, individual Yaakov, it's a message for Yaakov in his capacity, in his role as the progenitor of the Jewish people, of Yisrael. What God is about to say to Yaakov is a hint, it is a precursor, it is prophetic to the fact that the children of Yisrael are going to have to wrestle with their enemies in Kena'an. So Yaakov's exchange with, yeah, God's exchange with Yaakov here is not meant with the individual Yaakov, the character Yaakov. It is a reference to what will be with Yisrael, the Bnei Yisrael, going, going forward. Going forward. Says the Ramban, Vayomer Yaakov, Yaakov, look at the Ramban. Achar Shomer lo Hashem, lo yikar Yishim Chaud Yaakov, ki Yisrael yeshmecha, hayoroish yikro b'shem anech parahu. Once God changed His name to Yisrael, why didn't He use that more prominent name? Not to mention, three times in this conversation, it says Yisrael. So why is he calling him Yaakov, Yaakov? Avokaru Yaakov says to Ramban, Lirmos, ki atalu yasur mi'alokim ve'manashim v'yuchal. Avokaru Yaakov says to Ramban, Lirmos, ki atalu yasur You know why he's calling him Yaakov? Because who was it who wrestled with the angel? Yaakov went in and wrestled. And as he's going down to Egypt, he's going to have to wrestle again. When is he named Yisrael? Why is he named Yisrael? Ki Sarita. Because you wrestled and persevered. But you're not done. You're going to be wrestling again. And so you're back to being Yaakov, says the Ramban. You're heading down into Galus. You are not triumphant in perpetuity. You're going to be forced to wrestle again. And that's why he's back to being Yaakov. When the Torah is about to name the 70 who went down to Egypt and begins by saying Yaakov and his children, why doesn't it say Yisrael and his children? Yes, they will emerge from their B'nai Yisrael. Yes, they will promulgate and propagate and they'll have many, many children and they'll populate. Yes, they will emerge B'nai Yisrael. But going down, he's still Yaakov. They're going to face tough times. So says the Ramban, that's why, even though his name had been changed to Yisrael, God calls him here Yaakov. It's an allusion to the suffering, to the struggle that they are going to have to endure. Pasuk Gimel. 
Vayomer, Anochi Akel Alkei Avicha. I am the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down. Right, based on the Ramban that we saw, God anticipates, God knows that Yaakov's afraid. And he's telling him, My Yaakov, don't be afraid. Don't worry. Rashi says, Yaakov was distressed at the possibility that he would have to go to the diaspora, to Golos. That he was going to be leaving Israel. That was the source of his, of his distress. But the Yorachayim is bothered. Tzorach Ladas writes the Yorachayim. Ma'u amor ha'shayel Yaakov b'yiridus Mitzrayim. What's Yaakov afraid of? God says, my Yaakov, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You're going to become a great nation there. Don't be afraid. Ask the Yorachayim, what was he afraid of? Imora ha'galos imkein ma'yi kavanas Hashem altira if Yaakov's fear was, I'm going into the darkness of exile, to a hostile neighborhood, to a place of foreign values, well, how did the Rebona Shalom relieve that fear? God just said, don't worry, don't worry, have no fear. I'm going to make you a great nation there. Okay, so what? That we're going to have a lot of children there. That should make me not afraid. And if God was saying, don't be afraid, it's not going to be Golos there. But that's not true, and God wouldn't lie. It is Golos. Yaakov was right to be afraid. His descendants were going to be enslaved and suffer. God says, don't be afraid, I'm going to make you, you're going to have a lot of children. Yaakov says, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, I love a lot of children. How does that make me not afraid? Why is God promising to make him a great nation there? Yaakov can't say, look, God, you couldn't have worked things out for me to be a great nation in, Egypt, in Israel, in Canaan? I had to go to Egypt to become a great nation? Why couldn't I be a great nation in Israel? What's the Lamed? To a great nation I will make you there. So the Rechaim should have said, A great nation. So the Rechaim has four or five questions. What's Yaakov afraid of? How does God alleviate the fear? Why is becoming a great nation somehow make things better? Why couldn't God make them a great nation in Canaan? And why Ligoy instead of Goy? So answers the Yorachayim. Achein kavanas hakasav yilitzad mashakadam mehaudah la'avos kinigzer gzeris hagalas alayim. We know that this promise has already been made to the Avos that they're going to go into Galas. Kigeri yazarecha uminastam yagir Avram lebanav. Avram was told your children will be strangers. Uminastam yagir Avram lebanav. This probably came up in conversation between Avram and his children and grandchildren. By the way, keep your eye out. God made me a promise. Not sure when it's going to happen. But you should know. So Yaakov understood that that, that promise of a Golos was coming true. This was the beginning of that period. And he was also worried that he was going to be buried there. That the entire destiny of the Jewish people would now be shifted to, would be pivoted to Egypt. Yaakov 
lo tam tam shibur ve'inui kemokin ata altira shata yored mitzrayma. When God says Anochi akel lelokei avicha, I am the God of your father. Says the Rambam. What God was saying was, yes, this gulos is going to come, but you will be spared. You personally are not going to suffer. So now Yaakov might be thinking, let me wait this out. When the famine's over, we'll take Yosef and we'll go back up. Why do we have to be here permanently? God says, Yaakov, don't have any possible misconception. You are not going for a vacation. This is not temporary. Unpack. It's worth unpacking. Because you're going to be there for a while. Because, you know, Yaakov, you're afraid? You have reason to be afraid. You're right. This is the master plan. It's unfolding. It's happening. It's not going to affect you. Just like your father was spared, you personally will be spared. But don't have any misconceived notion that you're going to pack everyone up and come back here because you're going to become a great nation. Not back here. You'll get back here eventually. But where you're going to go from being a family into a nation is going to be down there. And here the Orachayim uh, invokes his Kabbalistic side. And he quotes the Rashbi of Shimon Bar Yochai, who teaches, Why did the Jewish people have to go into Golis? Why did we become a nation in a foreign place? And the answer is, there are sparks of holiness dispersed throughout the world, and through our experience in the diaspora, we collect those sparks of holiness and combine them, and we elevate and transform the world. <laughs> in Egypt, which is the capital, the epicenter of Tumah and of depravity, that is where we can redeem the sparks of holiness. You don't have to redeem sparks of holiness in the holiest place. When you go into the place which is the least holy, that's when you can redeem the sparks of holiness. Because we always have a perfect ratio. However deep the Tumah is, that's the potential depth of the Kedusha. So if you see a morally bankrupt and corrupt society, there is the potential to achieve and to redeem within it great sparks of holiness. And this is the Jewish experience wherever we go. We don't just set up uh, banking systems and lending systems in the countries that host us. That's not ultimately why we're there. Wherever we go, we are supposed to bring redemption, to redeem the sparks of holiness, to find that which is redeemable within each of our host nations. And this is the precursor to it, says the Orchayim. The first experience of Gullus we have, the first experience of being dispersed in the world, was Davka to a place saturated in Tumah, because that's where there's value in redeeming holiness. And that is what God is telling Yaakov. Don't have any fear. You're going to be there for a while. You have a mission. You have a reason to be there. And only when it is complete will you, will you come back. Pasuk Dalit. Actually, let me share with you just the inside of the Rav. Rabbi Soloveitchik said, Rabbi Soloveitchik said, don't be afraid of going down to Egypt. 
The Ramban explains that the patriarchs maintained their sanctity, their Kedushas Yisrael, and were bound by Jewish law only when they lived in Canaan. For example, Yaakov was permitted to marry two sisters while he was in Haran, but once he entered Canaan, it was prohibited. Rachel, the second of Yaakov's wives, therefore died upon his return to Canaan. Yaakov was afraid that if he left Israel and went down to Egypt, he would once again lose the Kedushas Yisrael. God therefore reassured Yaakov that God himself would accompany Israel during their long sojourns in Egypt. They would not lose their Kedushas Yisrael there. Indeed, not only would Yaakov's family not lose their Kedushas Yisrael in Egypt, they would gain additional sanctity. Only in Egypt can the nation become a goy gadol, a great nation. Right? So Yaakov knew halachically that once he traverses the boundary of Egypt, he loses that what makes him Jewish. He is not bound by the rules of being a Jew, and he doesn't have the privilege of the sanctity of being a Jew. He knew that very practically, in terms of, as the Rav describes, the law of multiple wives. So now he's worried. If God, you are expelling us from Israel, if we're descending into exile in Egypt, I'm losing that which gives me my very identity, my Kedushas Yisrael. I'm losing my Jewish identity. I go back to being just like everybody else. And that is what God is reassuring him here. No. Anochi akel avicha. Don't be afraid. What's the next part? I'm going with you. And I'm going to come back out with you. So don't be afraid. Not only will you not lose your Kedushis Yisrael, I'm going with you. I saw a beautiful insight of the Menachem Tzion, Rav Menachem Ben Tzion Zaks, who was a Rav in Chicago. He was the son-in-law of Rav Tzipesach Frank, the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim. It's an interesting story how he ended up in Chicago. He's a Rav in Chicago and he wrote a beautiful sefer, the Menachem Tzion, Rav Menachem Ben Tzion Zaks. He also happens to be the um, grandfather of Mr. Landis, one of our members, the great-grandfather of Yossi Landis, the great-great-grandfather of Tzvi Landis who just had his bar mitzvah here last Shabbos. So in his Menachem Tzion, he writes that in this Pasuk, Anochi Ered Imcha, Anochi Aale Gamalo, what's the Anochi? It's the Anochi of Aseris Adibros. The Anochi, Hashem Elokecha. The Anochi of, As- of Aseris Adibros is going down with you. Don't worry. You could bring Aseris Adibros down with you. You could bring being a Jew down with you. L'shechina. I am going down with you. <clears throat> and that's what the Rav says is going, da- is going on exactly here. Yaakov says, I don't want to go. To be a Jew, I'm only a Jew in Israel. Once I leave Israel, I'm not a Jew. I'm a Jew. I lose the status of being a Jew. And God says, it's not true. You take your Judaism with you wherever you go, and not only that, you take me with you. Anochi Ered, the Shechina, I am going with you. Not only is the Kedushas Yisrael going with you, that's where you will become a Goy Gadol. On his way to Haran, writes the Rav, Yaakov was assured by the Almighty the land would be his after his return. I will give it to you and your seed. Yet such a promise is not to be found in the prophecy revealed to Yaakov on his way to Egypt. The Almighty merely told Yaakov, I will go down with you and I'll bring you up without promising him the land. This promise was not necessary for an act done under coercion neither cancels rights nor generates obligations. Though Yaakov and his children absented themselves in the promised land, their claims to the land were not undermined. They did not forfeit their ownership of the land because Yaakov's departure from Canaan was in the words of the Pesach Haggadah compelled by the word of God. He did not leave voluntarily. And the Rav goes on to describe what does it mean to be a Goy Gadol. Pesach Haggadah emphasizes the term Goy Gadol as the connotation of Mitsuyanim. Right? Remember we say in the Haggadah, the Goy Gadol, we derive each of the words, the Goy Gadol, that they were Mitsuyanim Sham. They were distinct, they were unique. A great nation, says the Rav, distinguishes itself in two areas. It distinguishes itself in the area of righteousness, as it says in Dvarim, 
And what Goy Gadol is there that has statutes and ordinances so righteous as this law? Umi Goy Gadol, and so on. If a nation approves of injustice, it cannot lay claim to greatness. No matter how powerful its military and economy, or how ingenious in its matters of science and technology, real greatness consists of the innate quality of fairness and righteousness, and the spontaneous indignation when one is confronted with hypocrisy and selfishness. Very interesting, right? God promises you'll be a great nation. And for the Rav, the definition of a great nation is not even scientific breakthrough or technology, is not economy or military. Great nation is justice and fairness and righteousness and kindness. What makes Israel today a great nation is not just its disproportionate contribution to innovation, is not just its uh, economy or its mighty military. What makes Israel a great nation is it's the first to show up when there's a natural catastrophe anywhere in the world. That's what makes Israel a Goy Gadol, a great nation that we should be proud of. Second, says the Rav, a Goy Gadol distinguishes itself in the area of prayer. A great nation is a prayerful nation, a nation that knows the secret of prayer. This is true of an individual. A great person knows how to pray. Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov were great because they were acquainted with prayer. The Gemara says, I will make you a Goy Gadol, and therefore we say in the Amidah, the God of Avram, a great nation consists of many praying individuals who feel each other's pain and who suffer and pray in community. The Rav has a lot more to say here. I have a lot more to say here. But alas, we are out of time. I encourage you to stay for Rabbi Moskowitz's class. Please remember, tomorrow night we have the uh, halachic, the kashrus issues of scotch and whiskey, and then a presentation by the ambassador of McAllen and a scotch tasting. On Thursday night, Rabbi Mesh Tarragon. Saturday night, the rally for Israel. And Sunday, women's health and halacha.